Hello everyone, um, my name is Robert Buckingham uh, and I'm the creative director of M Pavilion. Uh, we'd like to welcome you all here today um, uh, on behalf of the M Pavilion team. Uh, we'd like to say Waminjika, uh, which is Boonarong for welcome, and we'd acknowledge the original um, owners of this land, the Boonarong people, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and to the future. Um, this building, called M Pavilion, uh, is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation. Um, there are four pavilions, will be built over four years. This is the second, designed by um, uh, an English architect called Amanda Levite. Um, and after their four-month life in the Queen Victoria Gardens, uh, the building is gifted to the city and is moved to a permanent location. Last year's pavilion has been moved to the Hellenic Museum on, the, on William Street, so if you're interested, please go and have a look at that one from last year. Today we're very excited to have um, a special conversation uh, with um, Bill Fox, who is visiting Australia from Nevada, from the Nevada Museum of Art, where he is the director of uh, the Art and Environment Centre. Um, he's in conversation with Guy Abrahams from Climart, and we're delighted to be able to put together this event um, uh, in collaboration with the John Truscott Foundation, National Gallery of Victoria, um, and M Pavilion. I'd also like to thank very much um, Martin Carlson. Uh, Martin uh, was the person who pulled all this event together and introduced us all. Martin is one of the great connectors in Melbourne and um, one of those people that really makes this city uh, very special. So thank you, Martin, for being here. Um, as you know, there's also after this, so this is a, a really a conversation without visuals uh, because we're in the middle of the garden, we don't really need them. But uh, afterwards, uh, this evening, uh, Bill's going to be doing a visual presentation uh, of examples of interesting work of art uh, relating to the environment. But today, um, welcome Guy and Bill. Thank thanks. you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks, thanks Robert. And yes, thanks Martin for putting us all in, in touch with each other. Um, so I'm really pleased to be here and have Bill a bit out of the sun, the great Australian sun. Um, Bill is from Reno, Nevada, where he's, as Robert said, sent, uh, director of the Centre for Art and Environment. And I thought we're here, Bill, to talk about art and nature, but it might be interesting for um, the gathered uh, audience for you to give a bit of a background to how you became involved in this, this, this really interesting area. Yeah, so actually tonight I'm going to talk about when I first started on this train of thought in 2005 in Australia, when I was first brought here by the Getty Museum where I was working. Uh, in 2008, uh, I was asked by the museum in Reno, which is an 80-year-old art museum, to see if they could start um, a research project about art and environment. They already had collections that were about that topic the altered landscape photography for collection, for example, documenting through the eyes of artists what human beings have done to the surface of the planet. So that was a major collection that had toured around the world. And they wanted to know if there was a way to have a research function that would go along with those curatorial efforts and education efforts. So I, I, I looked around and talked to a bunch of people around the world. And there were a lot of exhibitions being done about art and environment. So art and environment, by the way, I, we define it as, as creative interactions with um, natural, built, and even virtual environments, so it's a very broad rubric. So there are people doing exhibitions about it, and people even having programs that might go for a year, maybe two years, but no one was collecting the archives. 
and no one was had formed a library around this, and no one was bringing scholars and artists together to talk about this for a, a long arc of inquiry. Every time I would mention this to a museum in England or Germany or Norway or something, or someone here, they would go, no, we're no, not doing that, but that's a really good idea. So I knew we had to do it soon if we were going to do it in a place like Reno, which is not on the coast. It's a place you have to ha actually have to make an effort to get to. So in 2009, uh, late 2008, we had a conversation about this. And uh, you, you weren't at the first conference. You no, came to the second. second. Well, this is the first art and environment conference we had, which we now do every three years. We had a conversation uh, with a couple of hundred invited speakers and listeners. And within two weeks, we had 3.1 million hits online about that conversation. The board of directors at that point said, we better get running. We better move. And so in January of 2009, then we opened the center. Currently, we have materials we're working with by almost 1,000 artists working on all seven continents. We collect art projects from the Antarctic, from the Arctic, from the Atacama Desert in Chile, from Connecticut, from from Hobart, Tasmania, David Stevenson, a photographer is here. We're collecting a fantastic project he's doing with a partner, his partner Martin Walsh, uh, work partner, all across the watershed of the Derwent River. So we're working all around the world. Uh, what happens is we bring archives to Reno, we sort them out, we begin to put them online, and scholars come from around the world to study these. So we're creating new knowledge. So we'll take David's project about the Derwent, We'll put it next to Richard Black, the Australian architect's project about the Murray. We'll put that next to a project about the Truckee River, our local river. And we'll create new knowledge, because those things have not been previously associated together, so they'll generate some sparks. And, um, and then we'll publish books, and we do exhibitions and so forth. Our museum does about 30 to 40 exhibitions a year. Um, I do, out of those archives, three to seven exhibitions a year. So it's a very active program. We're in a four-story building. We're growing so fast. We're going to build a 16-story building uh, across the street. Um, so it's, I mean, we're, it, there's a lot of this activity going on in the world. It's very important to the world. And so people are very generous about giving us materials and we're mm. bursting at the seams. So, you know, artists have been engaging with, interacting with nature for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, we all know, you know, great examples of, of landscape painters or, uh, you know, people working in the environment, but what do you think it is, or do you think that there's something, uh, some different point about the now? I mean, that, that you're concentrating on this particular interaction. What's what's so special? Why should we have a focus on that at all? Most museums around the world do shows on all sorts of art. Why focus on this area? Yeah, yeah great question. Well, um, it's a nice niche to market. <laughs> That's what my director, who has to raise all the money for this, you know, he appreciates the fact that we actually have a focus. Um, look, so I love landscape art, and I, I grew up loving landscape painting, and I, I was very curious about the motives for why people would paint landscapes. As we say at the museum, you know, art means many things to many people, but to a category of artists in the 1800s um, who were connected with the great explorations of the world, those artists were painting the world because they were cataloging it and mapping it. And they were following great scientists like Alexander von Humboldt in South America, um, who basically is a, has been, if you had to pick a figure who, and you would say, who's the progenitor of ecology? It's Alexander von Humboldt um, going to South Americans in 1799. Uh, and he's the first guy to look at how plant ensembles are connected by altitude and by temperature and how that's consistent around the world. 
Well, there are artists that were entranced by this vision of the world and who followed him around, literally walked in his footsteps years later and made magnificent landscape paintings. So they're cataloging picturing the world. Photography comes along and begins to do that, in the, seriously do that in the 1860s. And again, the photographers are traveling with the scientists and they're cataloging the world, but they're also beginning to catalog the human footprint at the same time. So they're out in the desert, but there are buildings, there are mining buildings and so forth. So they're photographing both nature and the built environment. By the time World War II world rolls around and Ansel Adams is trying to make those beautiful photographs of, of pure nature, he's literally having to scratch things off his negative that are evidences of human trace because the human footprint at that point is physically unescapable. There are artists in the 1960s and 70s who begin to make projects. I mean, they want to have a footprint too. Mm. They're not going to leave it up to freeways and buildings, so they want to have a footprint, so they create land art projects where they actually move dirt around to make sculpture, for example. And that vocabulary gets picked up by artists now who are seeking to actually intervene in the landscape and make projects not just in response to, say, climate change or to uh, rivers that are, that are uh, eroding their banks because the precipitation that used to be snow is now rain and it's you know, flooding certain areas. They're making works that actually mitigate the erosion. But why, why, are we, why are we asking artists or interested in artists doing this? I mean, if we've got some uh, stormwater mitigation effort or we want to reduce emissions or whatever, I mean, I'd go to the scientist, I go to the engineer. If I've got a toothache, I go to the dentist. I don't go to an artist. Why, why should artists be involved in this sort of, this field? That's, is that what artists do? Well, you go to the dentist to get a cavity fixed, right? Because your mouth hurts, right? But the real reason you're going to the dentist most of the time is to keep your teeth clean and straight. You know, I always used to wonder in cowboy movies, how come the teeth of the Indians are so good? I mean, in real life, they're not. Because dental care on a reservation in North America is not so good. It's OK, but it's not perfect. And so why do the teeth always? Well, that's because the, the Native Americans, the Indians, who are playing the Indians, they're also maybe even first actors almost before they're Indians. To be an actor, you've got to have good teeth. That creates a culture of good teeth. So we all look at TV and media and movies, and we all go, oh, good teeth. We want to follow that. There's also that genetic predisposition to symmetry in the human face. If you had good teeth, it indicates good bone structure. So you don't want to mate with that person because you want to have children who have good bone structure, right? You had to ask that question, right? So actually, he asked me that last night, so I've been thinking about it, right? Um, no, look, it, you can have a technology of sustainability. And I'll show this example tonight uh, in the talk. Uh, and if you don't have a culture of sustainability, it, the technology will get put by the wayside and won't get adopted or taken care of. There's a, uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile, um, actually right now is in bloom. It's had the most amount of rain in some parts of it that's ever had in a 1,000 years. Um, and there are parts of the Atacama Desert where it has not rained at all in recorded history, and that's including going back to the Incas. Um, the Pacific fog comes off the ocean and hits the coastal mountains of the Atacama Desert. And that is the only source of fresh water in the Atacama, because no rivers run to the sea, and it never rains. How do you drink clouds? Well, as it turns out, you can. You can actually put up screens. You can put up a muslin, cloth, a cloth muslin, and between a couple of poles, and the fog will hit it, condense on it, and drip down. You've all seen this happen on your houses. If you put a trough underneath that and you collect that condensation, you have clean, fresh water. So scientists 20 years ago went to the Atacama, and they built a project like that 
And the village that was on the seashore below, you know, 1,500 meters below, um, got that water from the clouds hitting the mountains. And for the first time, they could grow vegetables without having to pipe in water. And they, could, they grew so many vegetables. They had drinking water, and they grew so many vegetables, they could export vegetables up and down the coast of the other villages. The screens were really ugly. And the villagers, after about 10 years, just did, did not take care of the screens. They just said, we don't care. It looks old-fashioned. It doesn't look good. We're going to go back to paying a lot of money to pipe water from the mining companies in central Chile. So we went in with a team of architects from Santiago and built a lot of different experimental, nice-looking, interesting structures. Some of them look like crashed spaceships from a Star Wars movie, but they actually increase the amount of, of wind and then thus fog that goes over them. And they would wring you know, water out of the clouds, out of the fog. Did not hurt the local uh, ecology at all. It's enough water, it doesn't make any difference. And it, these things produced gallons and gallons of water. And so um, the architects made a fog garden. And they made these drawings, and they said, this is what we will build you. And this is what it will do. It will give you all the water you want to grow crops and to have fresh water. And the villagers said, this is beautiful. This belongs to us. We like this. We'll take care of this. Then the earthquake hit Santiago, and it didn't get built, because all the money went to rebuild parts of Santiago and, and places down south of, of the city. But the point was that it demonstrated you could create something that was beautiful that had aesthetic value, right? That was designed. It wasn't just built. It was designed. And that made a difference. So we've seen that. And that's just one example of one project. We've got 100 projects mm. that, that demonstrate that dynamic, that if you make something, if an artist and or an architect or a team together design something, what you're doing is you're creating empathy for the structures and for place, and that's another. So yeah. part of the role of the museum is to to develop that cultural empathy with with these activities. How do you? What sort of response do you get from other museums, from the museum world? Because you occupy a sort of it's not quite an activist position, but you are out there saying you know this is important. This is a particular important part of culture and art we're going to give it a push. Do you get kickback from other museums? How do you, you know, when you're sharing exhibitions, what, what sort of feedback do you get? Do you get any? We do. And the response varies, I think, according to the museum. Every single museum person I've ever talked to have said, that's a good idea. We're glad you're doing that. Um, we do tour exhibitions, and people do actively solicit things from us. Um, in a way, it, not that it saves them the trouble of doing it, uh, but it's just not their mission, and it's clearly ours. So we don't mind sort of being the single source point from which that can emanate, at least in our part of the world. Um, but now there are other museums that are beginning to say, so there was a big meeting in New York City at the Natural History Museum um, about the Anthropocene about um, how do we present the Anthropocene so people understand. Explain, yeah. yeah, I should explain the Anthropocene. How, everybody raise their hands who knows what the Anthropocene is. OK, so a few of you. Um, Paul Kreutzen is an atmospheric physicist. Um, he's speaking at a conference in Mexico. Uh, and and there, uh, he and the other scientists who are looking at, at um, stratospheric and atmospheric dynamics are talking about the Holocene. They're talking about the last 10,000 years uh, of relatively stable climate patterns. Uh, the spread of human beings around the planet. It's called the Holocene, the recent era. And Kreutzen's getting twitchy in the middle of this conversation. And finally, he just can't help himself. And he says, I, we're not in the Holocene anymore. 
we're in the, the, we're in the Anthropocene. And everybody looks at him and says, like, okay, Paul, do you want to explain that? Now, this is a Nobel laureate who won a, uh, was one of three guys who shared the prize for discovering the mechanism for ozone depletion in the atmosphere. So he, he is the most cited uh, Earth system scientist of the 20th century. So he has enormous authority. So when he coins a new word, or actually it was coined by somebody else, but when he brings forth this word that no one really knows and applies it to this, the world listens. So he said, look, since 1790 and the invention, or the commercial invention by James Watt of the steam engine, the amount of fossil fuel that's been consumed is so immense, it's laid a carbon, a strata of carbon around the world. That's how you define a change in geological epoch, when there's a worldwide change of strata, right? That demonstrates an event. And then he later goes on to say, well, there are really three stages in the Anthropocene so far. First stage is roughly 1790 to 1945 or so, the end of World War II. Really slow kind of plotting accretion of chemicals in the ocean, uh, chemicals in the atmosphere. Things are not warming up so much. Then there's the Great Acceleration. All of that sort of military industrial complex built to fight the war, to prosecute the war, gets turned into pumping out consumer goods. And the economy goes crazy. And if you've ever seen An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, you saw that graph where everything, just all, every single chemical signature on the planet goes crazy. That's a great acceleration. Then he proposes a third stage. And he says, in the 1990s, human beings in general expect, uh, understand that the world is a single physical system. And they understand that we affect that physical system. And they understand we can choose how to affect that physical system. And he said, that's the third stage of the Anthropocene. So we're aware that things are changing. We're aware we play a part in it. And we're aware we can do something about it. So in essence, this, what I do at the Nevada Museum of Art is I collect the Anthropocene, the art of the Anthropocene. I mean, in essence, right? So this meeting in New York that says to all these museums from around the world, how are we going to present the Anthropocene? We were like the only art guys. And it was great because they all started to think about, oh, not just the technology of sustainability, the culture of sustainability, and how is that presented by artists and architects and humanists around the world? I'm writers and dancers and theater people, too. It's not just visual arts, right? Yeah. And do you think that the, I mean, it's great to occupy that unique position that you do, in a way, because it's a great niche, as you said, and your director loves it in terms of going out marketing. But the role of the museum generally, um, in my in my perception up to now has been a role of presenting things in a sort of impartial impartial way this is what's going on that as i say more activist role do you think that that's something which museum more museums are looking at you from that conference did you get that sense that yeah we're going to engage more with these issues in a in an active way is there is there concern about that uh, trepidation about that as well as enthusiasm yeah, yeah sure yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so the board of directors of our museum said art and environment. So Bill, this is like a program for tree huggers in the Sierra Nevada. I said, no, 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 no. It's, our environmentalism is part of art and environment, but it's not the whole story. It's, it's a part of it. You can't talk about the environment without obviously including people who feel strongly about all these different viewpoints about it. We sort of fell into this activist business so what happened is, so, so you know, David Stevenson here will bring me down to Hobart to the art school to give a talk about what the museum is doing in art and environment, in essence to say to, to students, what are other artists doing around the world to provide models for behavior, right? And David says, yeah, well, you know, this guy Martin Walsh and I are thinking about this project, 
And you know, we're thinking about photographing above, on, and under the Derwent River, and we're thinking about measuring all the changes along the river and so forth. And David, I'm being inarticulate about this, forgive me, but he's smiling gently at me, being patient. And, um, and he says, we're thinking about doing this. And I said, oh, well, that's a really cool project. And he, they'd already tested a few videos and a few still photographs about this project. And I said, what if we were to collect the archive? So that's us intervening early and saying, we'll collect something right while you're doing it. We're already planning. So it's like, David, don't throw away your receipts. Hang on to them, right? Hang on to everything. But then sometimes we'll actually commission a project that we know is going to produce an archive. And why would a museum produce an archive? And so that, you know, the business about culture is it transmits knowledge from generation to generation. One of the reasons we collect Aboriginal art, it's kind of the oldest train of thought in art and environment on the planet, right? Um, is because they have successfully, it's the most, uh, dream time and song lines and dance and painting for Aboriginal cultures, it's the most sophisticated, most successful, non-technological system of knowledge on the planet. It's kept these people alive for 50,000 years on the most hostile continent outside of the Antarctic. In my mind, that's because they've successfully transmitted knowledge from generation to generation of what to eat and when and how to act, right? Through law, you know, that's represented in the, in the, the culture that they make. Art museums do the same thing. We don't do it as well, but we're kind of a momentary, a momentary stay against entropy. So 97% of all art that's made goes away in 100 years of its making on average. That's good, otherwise we'd be sociopathic because there wouldn't be room to make any, we have to recreate, we have to recreate, we have to make the world anew through art. Museums are just a part of grabbing onto what we can, making sure that it lasts from generation to generation, so that the work by David and Martin, or the work by the Harrisons in the Sierra Nevada, or the work by you know, people in, in Holland or whatever, the environmental projects, those techniques and technologies, and the culture, all of that knowledge is kept. Because this is not a short problem. I mean, living in an environment that's stressed, that's a very long-term problem. So you need to have long-term knowledge about that. So having a museum that is in a place to collect the archives and present and re-present those things throughout the decades, I mean, it's really important work. So it, to me, it's not just a niche. It's kind of like the holy grail, you know, mm -hmm. but I mean, mm. yeah. And do you think that there, there, there is a, a broad re-evaluation or, or a partial re-evaluation of the value, one of the values of art or one of the meanings of art? I mean, if you go back to Renaissance, you know, where you had Leonardo and Michelangelo who were equal scientists and artists and no one questioned it and they were, you know, great thinkers in all of these fields. Do you think there is hopefully some sense now that artists can take part in the broader debates and um, discussions in society, bringing their special cultural knowledge to it. Is that, is that you know, are we just experiencing between us a little sort of blip of that, or do you think that that might be the, the way of the future? Yeah, you know, C.P. Snow wrote this book called The Two Cultures about this, right? He was scared to death that science and humanities were going in separate directions and the two would stop talking, and he had it all wrong. They never stopped talking. The artists never stopped following the scientists. The scientists, if you walk into an artist's home, you see books about science. If you walk into a scientist's home, you see books about art. I mean, the, you know, it's like they're not mutually exclusive. Mm. There is a shift in behavior, I think, that's interesting in both fields, and they're, and they're parallel. Science now is mostly created by people working in teams. It's not by the individual science sitting in the basement with this hand, homemade cyclotron. Um, if you want to build a cyclotron and learn anything, you have to build a really big one, and that takes you know, thousands of people working on it. So even mathematicians often now are 
the most solitary kind of scientist I can imagine, are often working in teams because the problems are so intractable. Gravity is not going to be solved mm -hmm. by one person in a lifetime. It's going to take multi-generations and teams of people figuring it out. Artists are doing the same thing. So again, I, you know, David, I'm just beating you to death here about this, but David and Martin are a great example. We have a still photographer and a, a videographer slash digital artist, um, and both of them influencing each other. It takes all of that, it takes that bigger skill set to figure out a watershed, for example. Exactly, yeah. and I was going to, I was going to say, if it preempt, you know, that access to that universal access to technology now, which is really, I mean, is that enabling, if not greater, a different sort of sense of engagement between absolutely artists and scientists yeah. and yeah. whatever. Yeah, and so you find, I mean, so science has, has gotten quicker in a way because you can sort of get around the peer-reviewed publishing process, which can be very slow, and things are changing very fast, so the publishing process, the way of pushing knowledge out needs to get faster. So science, the science community has developed ways to present papers kind of in draft with a lot of caveats online so people have access to that material very quickly. Um, some of those, net, and, and that's the beginning of the internet actually, is, as you know, it's a science sharing technology. Um, and you see, you see as a result the arts community doing the same thing. Um, and then you see the artists and scientists looking at each other. The scientists, so I'm, I'm part of a, a group of people trying to create artist residencies at science stations around the world. So there are, uh, there, I think there are about 900 different science stations in different environments uh, where they study everything from stream flow to uh, forestry to invertebrates to whatever it happens to be. Every single scientist I speak to and every single manager of those science stations says, we'd love to have artists and residents here because two things. One, they can help us illustrate what we're doing. No artist likes to hear that. I mean, it's not like putting a graphic artist and residence to, it's not illustrating a data set. But artists can create empathy for the place in which we're working. And by, and just by, if they take a photograph, if they paint a picture, if they, it's a parallel arc of inquiry. Sometimes, the, and sometimes the artists come in and actually do science projects. So I'll show some examples tonight. Yeah, I mean, you were talk, yeah. we were talking a bit about this last night or yesterday, and you were, you were saying how that notion of the local and about how some sort of cultural engagement or artistic invention, uh, intervention can really strengthen that sense of the local. And in fact, it's the local and the people in, in a particular place who are most, who are best placed to advocate for what, what's on around them. So business people, marketing people in particular, have a, have a value chain. I don't know if some of you know about this. A value chain basically says if you've got information, how do you translate into somebody buying a product? So scientists looked at this value chain and they have adapted it. And I'll talk about this tonight. I'll actually show the chart. Scientists are really good at creating data, or collecting data, and they, they turn the data into information. And then, and that's kind of down here, and that's relatively easy to do, and you do it over time. And then up here, where it's more difficult, is you've got people who make policy and people who take action based on the policy. How do you connect the knowledge to the policy? And this is, well, I won't go on my high horse about reinventing the enlightenment, which I think is interesting that we have to go through that. But so how do you get from, how do you get from knowledge to policy? And it, what you do is you create empathy and for whatever it is that you're doing. So in the case of art and science and art and climate change, you're creating empathy through art and humanities for a place. And it's the effect on the place. So um, you asked me if, you know, are you seeing climate change in Reno? What's happening in Reno, right? And yeah, well, we're seeing precipitation. I mean, Reno's in the desert on the edge of the mountains. Precipitation uh, patterns are changing. 
We have to get people to save water. We have to get people to think about what can they do in the mountains to, to uh, mitigate the fact that precipitation is coming as rain, not snow. So it makes runoff, it goes away. You have to store it more carefully. You have to use it more carefully. The way you do that is you put people all along that water chain and you show what's going on. And you, you get people to love the place and then they'll start to take care of it. Again, it goes back to that culture of sustainability. It's mm -hmm. not just technology. Mm -hmm. So the, the job of the arts and humanities can be to create local empathy for the places where people live and that enables them, gives them the reason to act in, re in response to whatever the changes are that they need to respond to. I mean, there's actually an yeah. amazing example of that which I just heard last night. So there's this big pipeline, you know, proposed from Canada down through the United States yeah, to bring Keystone, the Keystone mm -hmm. pipeline, bring yeah. the tar sands down. And most of the uh, objections to that have come from the local communities along the, the route of that, of that pipeline. Uh, last night, the, the proponent of the pipeline withdrew its application for permission because it realised that it just does not have uh, that local um, licence along the route. And that incredibly powerful um, uh, response is exactly that.